Thank you, Benji, for leading us uh, in that wonderful time of fellowship, uh, just focusing our hearts and minds uh, on the truth of God's Word and just uh, listening to everyone uh, share uh, was a great encouragement to my heart as well, just seeing um, the Word of God uh, working in our hearts and encouraging us in these times, which is, which is wonderful. Um, as Jordan has read um, from, the, from the fourth chapter of uh, Hosea, we are in uh, the book of Hosea doing a series called, uh, O Love That Will Not Let Me Go. Um, and it's a series on the pursuit of God's people, uh, the love of God that He has for His people. Um, and I want us to study this book because I believe um, it is... It shines a light on the character of God. It shines a light on the nature of God. It tells us who God is. And it tells us in no uncertain terms, and it tells us in, in terms that we might find harsh. But it is the truth. And therefore, I believe to study Hosea is to study God. How He acts, what He expects, what we need to do to respond to the expectations that he has of his people. Um, if you've been with us uh, in the past three chapters, uh, we've, we've been introduced to Hosea, we've been introduced to his unfaithful wife, Goma. Uh, and now, uh, after chapter three and from chapter four onwards, we, uh, Goma is out of the scene. Now it's just basically Hosea being the mouthpiece of Yahweh to Israel. So it's basically God is speaking directly to Israel about their issues and, and the problems that he has with Israel. And I want to re read again the first, four, first three verses, and we look at this in five sections. And as we read, I want us to think about three things. The cause and consequence of compromise. The cause and con consequence of compromise. I don't have um, a different alliteration for each um, of the five sections like I usually do because as we look at each of these five sections, each section continues to tell us about compromise, how it is caused, and what the consequences are, and just unpacks it in further detail, giving us a little more detail. It's like packing, unpacking the layers of an onion till we get to the core and that's what I want us to understand is, how does a nation like Israel, after seeing all that God has done, bringing her out of Egypt, taking her through the, the, the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, having the pillar of cloud, having all those miracles done in Egypt, having all those miracles done for 40 years in the wilderness, how does a nation come to this point? And the lesson for us, if you're thinking, why, does, uh, why do I need to listen to a sermon about ancient Israel, is because this is a sermon about contemporary evangelism. And I, and I, and I want us to see how the cause and the consequences of compromise will cause us to drift further and further and further further away till we are completely at sea, unmoored from any sort of foundation of truth. And therefore, this is a warning. This is a, 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 a red flag for us to take heed. Because we are, uh, we, we are not immune to what happened to Israel. 
And therefore, if we think, oh, that was Israel, I, I'm better than that. No, we're not. We're not. So read with me. I'm reading from the New American Standard. Jordan read from the New King James. There are a few variations with the ESV or the NIV, depending on, on what your um, uh, translation is. But uh, by and large, um, the, the meaning is consistent. And, there, and I'll point out where some of the variations are. Verse 1, listen to the word of the Lord. That, it, that itself should cause us to prick up our ears and say, hey, this is something that needs consideration. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land. Listen, uh, the, the word is to listen with the intent of, of obeying, to pay careful attention, to, to pay heed. And listen to the word of the Lord of Yahweh, O sons of Israel. Why should we listen to the word Hosea? For the Lord has a case. Some, verses, some, some variations may have a controversy. And the, the idea is of a lawsuit. The Lord is bringing a lawsuit against Israel. God is bringing a, a legal charge against his people. So that's why you need to listen. Why does the Lord have a case against the inhabitants of the land? Because there is no faithfulness. Jordan said there was no truth, and that is correct, because that word faithfulness has the idea of truth, of some sort of objective truth, reality something that has been confirmed as being objectively true. So the Lord is a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no truth or kindness. Jordan had mercy. Some of you may have mercy. And that idea is of from Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast mercy, kindness, hesed of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. And so that's that idea of covenant loyalty. That is God's love for his people because he has determined to love them because of the covenant he has made with them. And God is bringing a charge because he is finding that there is no faithfulness, no truth, no covenant loyalty, or knowledge of God in the land. It's interesting that God sees these three charges as worthy of a crime. No truth, no covenant loyalty, no knowledge of God. That's no personal experiential knowledge of God. There's, there seems to be a lack of a relationship. And that's why he is bringing this charge against his people. Instead of truth and covenant loyalty and a personal knowledge of God, what is present? Well, what is present is a violation of the clear commands of God. There is swearing. It's basically taking the name of the Lord in vain. Binding people to contracts and covenants by just making empty promises or by as the Lord lives, as the Lord says. There's swearing. There's deception. That's lying. There is murder. There's stealing. There's adultery. Everything that God has said no to in His covenant is being practiced instead of actually practicing truth and covenant loyalty and knowledge. They employ violence. Jordan said they break all the bounds. They break all the restraints. It's like they've cut loose. They've transgressed the lines that God has drawn. 
So instead of truth and covenant loyalty and a personal knowledge of God, there is lying and deception and swearing and murder and stealing and adultery, and everyone has just cut loose and just gone crazy and transgressed the lines that God has drawn in His commandment so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, as a result, consequences, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes and that has the idea of withering away, of growing weak and feeble, and it's a testimony against all the fertility gods and the bales and asterisks that Israel was, was praying to and worshipping in a, in a bid to make the land more fertile and in a bid to grow in their productivity and all of that. Therefore the land mourns and everyone who lives in it languishes along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. Depending on your version, you may have this as being something present, but actually the verbs in, in the text indicate that this is something to come. This is yet to happen. And, and, and uh, another version that I read said, The land shall mourn. Everyone who lives therein shall languish with the beasts of the field and the fowl of heaven. Even fish shall be taken away. It's like, God, it's like gen God's judgment and the flood. But at the flood, at least there were some remnants of animals left behind even after God's judgment. But this time, he's going to wipe everything. Zephaniah 1 uh, chapter, uh, chapter 1 verse 2 and 3 says, I will completely remove all things from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will remove man and beast. I will remove the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea. I will cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. That's a sort of similar passage, which gives us an idea of the severity of God's wrath against his people. And just, just so we understand, this is not God talking against Babylon this is not God talking about Syria or Egypt or any other nation that does not worship Him. This is God's judgment against His people. The people who have been called by His name, who are supposed to be a testimony about Yahweh to the nations. And so it's really serious. It's very serious. And, and I want to draw a few inferences from these three verses. Number one, God takes His word really seriously. God takes His word really seriously and He expects us to take His word seriously as He does. Because He's saying, I have a case against you. I am bringing you to court because there is no knowledge of God in the land. I'm bringing you to court because there is no truth in the land. I am bringing you to court because there is no covenant loyalty in the land. God takes His word seriously and He expects us to take His word just as seriously. And there are consequences for not doing so. If you look at, at the charge, no faithfulness, no truth, no covenant loyalty, no relationship, those are th three things that are worthy of a crime in God's eyes. And therefore, how are, we to, how are we to escape the crime? By being in truth, by practicing covenant loyalty, and by having a relationship with Him. It's pretty simple, really. I mean, there's no rocket science here, but it's, 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 um, it's interesting how a nation can go away from something so basic over time. And we would do well to pay heed to this. If God takes truth seriously, so should we. 
If God takes his covenant seriously, so should we. If God takes his relationship with us seriously, so should we. Truth, covenant, relationship. And so we have the idea of marriage once again that Hosea has con continuously been talking to us about. Hosea and Gomer, <coughs> Yahweh and Israel, Christ and his bride. That's the level, that's the intensity, that is the relationship that God has always wanted with his people. That of a husband and wife. That intimate, that close. And therefore it is a problem when there is no knowledge of God in the land. If I compromise truth, I compromise on the covenant, and the relationship will be affected. It's a simple, it, it, the, 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 the slippery slope is clear. That's what triggers the, the issue, compromising truth. And that's what I want us to listen to and, and, and pay attention to, the cause and the con consequences of compromise so that we will be able to avoid it in our own lives. How do we compromise truth? How does a nation like Israel, who has come into the land, who has seen the walls of Jericho fall because they raised a mighty shout, how has this nation come to the point where they are committing adultery with other gods? And, and that, that, that is going to be the, the, the subject of what I want to be talking about today. And I want to suggest a few things as to how we compromise truth. What songs do we sing in church? We can, we can preach all we want from the pulpit. If the songs are not consistent, that's compromise. Because we are celebrating and praising and worshipping with something that is not true. I mean, you, you think about this. Um, I'm not a scientist or, or anything or, or a chemist, but there, there is such a thing as adding other elements to make a metal stronger. I mean, I think we add something to iron to get aluminium to make it stronger or steel or whatever, but you have the idea that the, the, the natural uh, metal or the natural element is not strong enough, so we add something to it and it makes it stronger. And so we think, you know, maybe if I add something to God's word, I can make it more relevant, more palatable, more interesting, more attractive, more engaging. No. It doesn't work that way. Because God's word is pure. There is nothing that we can add to it to make it pure. The only thing that happens when we add to it is we compromise it, we make it impure, we corrupt it. And it makes it weak. If I compromise truth, I compromise the covenant, and I compromise my relationship with God. How do we compromise truth? By singing songs that compromise truth. How do we compromise truth? By listening to preachers who compromise truth. I mean, who do you listen to? Who do you listen to on the podcast? Whose books are you reading? Who are you following on social media? Because the moment you, you, you're scrolling through your phone and you see someone or you're listening to something while driving your car, that's, that's something pretending to be truth that is coming into your ears and moving into your brain and into your heart and making you believe that. 
And when we, whatever we, we, we presume to be true, we act upon. It changes us. It causes us to respond. It causes us to behave in a certain way. And if we are allowing things that are not true to come into our hearts and minds, we are poisoning our hearts and minds. When we mix lies with truth. And, and the thing is, look, we never do this intentionally. Who wants to do that intentionally? Do you think that Israel actually wanted to go away from God? No, it's like, you know, maybe what Satan said, has God said? Did he really say that? It's the classic, it, that's his strategy all the time, time and time and time again, as he did with Eve, so he does with Israel, so he does with us. Did God really say that? He causes us to doubt God's word. He causes us to doubt the truth. And so compromise, if I can offer a definition, is failure to be as zealous about God's word as he is. That's the spirit of compromise. Where we are not as zealous as God is about his word. Take, take the example of, imagine, imagine you're in, in ancient Israel, about Hosea's time, and you're on the city wall. Don and Kevin would have read about Ezekiel, the watchman on the wall. And so imagine that you're the watchman on the wall, and so therefore your responsibility now is to guard the city. Right? You're, you're the person who's looking out onto the horizon to make sure that there's no enemies on the way so that you can sound the alarm. Right? So it's, it's the middle of the morning, um, you know, the, there's nothing on the horizon, it's a beautiful day, but you notice there's a crack in the wall. What do you do? Well, you have a few options. You can say, hmm, it's just a crack. It's not going to matter. That crack can become bigger and bigger and bigger till it's going to matter one day. And similarly, the walls of our soul, if you can call it that, are breached, small at first, when we allow some untruth to penetrate and it forms a crack that becomes bigger and bigger and bigger till one day it's a different wall altogether. Let me read to you, I won't tell you who said it or when it was said, but I want you to listen to this. It's a quote. And this is what the quote says. This is the suggestion of the present hour. If the world will not come to Jesus, shall not the church go down to the world? Instead of bidding men to be converted and come out from among sinners and be separate from them, let us join with the ungodly world, enter into union with it, and so pervade it with our influence by allowing it to influence us. Let us have a Christian world. Certain ministers are treacherously betraying our holy religion under pretense of adapting it to this present age. The new plan is to assimilate the church into the world by semi-dramatic performances. They make the house of prayer too approximate to the theater. They turn their services into musical displays. In fact, they exchange the temple for the theater and turn the ministers of God's word 
into actors whose business it is to amuse men. This then is the proposal. In order to win the world, the Lord Jesus must conform himself, his people, and his world, and his word to the world. I will not dwell on so loathsome a proposal. Any ideas when that was said? <laughs> it was Spurgeon or could be MacArthur. <laughs> that was in 1888. More than a hundred years ago. If we think that this was a problem in Israel's time, it was, or it's, you know, it's just something new, no. This is something that has happened throughout the ages. This is the strategy of the enemy where he systematically dismantles God's truth, replaces it with his own lies, and lets people think that they are fine. Truth is not just a philosophical or conceptual idea. It is the way we protect ourselves. We need to understand this because if we don't understand the importance of truth, that unless we protect truth, we are left vulnerable to attack, we will die. There are consequences for messing with truth. Serious consequences. Do we see how vital it is for us today to hear this message of compromise from Hosea? Verse 4, yet let no one find fault. Despite all that's happened, you know, despite all the murder and, and, and bloodshed in the land, let no one find fault. That's okay. Turn a blind eye. Move on. Nothing to see here. Let no one find fault and let none offer reproof for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Now, some of you may have a version which says, yet let no one contend and yet let none accuse for with you is my contention, O priest. And God is basically saying, I don't want anyone to argue over here. That word contend or find fault is the same word which was in verse 1 where God is bringing a contention against the people. And he says, I don't want any argument from you guys. Because my contention is with you, the priest. And so there's a serious charge against the leadership of, of the nation. For, you, for with you is my contention. So you will stumble by day, you will be brought down, you're tottering about. It's a picture of instability, being unsteady. You will stumble by day, and the prophets will also stumble with you by night. And so you've got the priests and the prophets. The priests represent man to God, the prophet represents God to man. You have the spiritual leadership of the nation, and we're saying, both of you will stumble, both of you are coming to an end. And I will destroy your mother. Your mother is Israel. The, the, the one who is supposed to be betrothed and married to Yahweh and be Yahweh's wife and be the picture of faithfulness, but she's not. And so she will be destroyed. Verse 6, my people are destroyed. My people are destroyed. Why? For lack of knowledge. And there's a definite article, it's lack of the knowledge. And so it refers to the knowledge of God that was back in the previous section that we read. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge of God. And lack has the idea of being dwindling or being non-existent. My people are destroyed because you have rejected knowledge. And that idea of rejected is to 
to, um, to spurn as rubbish, to refuse to esteem, to uh, wholeheartedly cast off as worthless. You have considered my word as worthless. And so I will also consider you as being worthless as my priest. Since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. Some inferences again. God takes his word very seriously. Very seriously. And this idea of knowledge or the knowledge of God is the truth of God and the law of God and they are all used interchangeably over here to, come to, to represent and express the idea of the truth about God. Who is he? What does he want us to do? How does he want us to live? How should we be his people? How should we act in our day-to-day -day lives? How should we worship him? Truth is of prime importance in God's economy and the consequences of rejecting truth and treating it casually and treating it lightly is wrath. It's clear over here. Some inferences about leadership. What is the purpose of leadership? It's to protect the flock. How is it to protect the flock? By leading it in truth and by truth and to truth. That's the purpose of leadership. It was the purpose of the, the prophets and the priests in Israel's time. It's the prophet of the elders and the pastor in our time. And so God is bringing this lawsuit of a dereliction of duty on the part of the leaders. You guys have allowed this to happen on your watch. There is no knowledge of God in the land. There is no truth. There is no covenant loyalty. And he is laying the charge at the feet of the, of the priests. There's been a failure of leadership. Why? Because there has been a failure to teach. Successful leadership is not about how many people are in the church. It's not about how many numbers are in the church. It's not about how charismatic the preacher is. It is about how holy the people are. If we, as elders of this church, do not teach God's truth, then we have failed in our duty. And we will, we will give an answer to that when we stand before the, the great shepherd. And so I also, want to, I also want to make the point, preaching, what goes on in a church on Sunday is a matter of life and death. And I'm not saying this to, to aggrandize myself or anyone else who stands in this pulpit. I'm wanting to, to make the point so that I can aggrandize truth. What goes on here on Sunday is a matter of life and death. Do we realize that? Am I making a big deal about it? No. It says my people are destroyed for lack of truth because you have rejected me. I will reject you. There's clear consequences for treating lightly the word of God. How can we protect you if we are compromised ourselves? The more they multiplied, verse 7, the more they sinned against me. So it has the idea of 
the priesthood. The more they grow in number, the more self-sufficient they get, the more corrupt they become. We've seen this happen in church history. It's not strange to us. The more they multiply, the more they sinned against me, the more the clergy increases, the more corrupt it gets. I will change their glory into shame. There is prestige and privilege that comes with being a priest, but he will, he will change that. He will reverse that glory into shame, into dishonor. They feed on the sin of my people. I mean, this is quite literal, if you look at it. I mean, the, 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 what was the sin offering? The, the food was brought as a sin offering, all the, you know, the cows and the lambs and the goats and all. And what, that was food for the, for the priests, right? So they're feeding, literally, on the sin of the people. So it's, I mean, the more they sin, the more they get fed, right? It's fantastic. What a rot. They eat the sin. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity. And, and so it could be taken in two ways. It could be either like, you know, the more you sin, the more I get to eat. So, hey, go and have a great time. Or the more corrupt and degenerate the priesthood, the more uncorrupt the people. Because when you have a corrupt priesthood, you have a corrupt idea of what is sin. And so you have people sinning all the more. Hey, God loves you. Has a wonderful plan for your life. Doesn't matter what you do. God loves you without condition. Do what you like. Live as you please. And it will be like people, like priests. And so again, it could be taken in two ways. Either the priests are trying to align themselves with the shifting cultural goalposts, as we see in our day. Or it could be that the people are just following the act of the priesthood. I mean, it works both ways. The people will only rise as far as the pulpit. I think that's what Spurgeon said. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat but not have enough. They will play the harlot but not increase. Why? Because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. They have stopped giving heed to the Lord. I just want to direct your attention to Isaiah 24, verse 1 to 3. You don't have to turn there. But just on this idea of like people, like priests, what does that mean? Isaiah 24, 1 to 3. Behold, the Lord lays the earth waste, devastates it, distorts its surface, and scatters its inhabitants, and the people will be like the priest, the servant like his master, the maid like her mistress, the loyal, the buyer like the seller, the lender like the borrower, the creditor like the debtor, the earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. And so this has the idea of whether you're priest, whether you're person, whether you're, no matter who you are, this, this, regardless of where you stand in society, judgment is coming. And so the, the accusation is very clear. You priests have led my people more and more into sin. Why? Because you failed to recognize my truth and practice my truth and teach the people my word. You can say, hey, you know, you actually have the priests here. You actually have the offerings. You know, you have offerings being offered because, you know, the, the priests are eating the offerings. So isn't that an, an indication that they are following God's word? No. Because what does God say? You know, I hate your offerings. 
Yes, you do them, but you're not giving it to me with the right heart. It's a stench in my nostrils. And so just because we have this idea that people are doing religious things doesn't mean that God is pleased with them. How often have we heard that? I mean, I th we know this. We know this. And when I say we, I mean, yes, we in our congregation, I, I say we in society. Just because someone's making a show of being religious doesn't mean they're actually right. And yet people fall prey to it. Just because there's a cross on our building or around our neck doesn't mean we're a Christian. Just because someone is offering to God doesn't mean God is accepting that offering. And we sometimes have that idea, and I, and I read this in, in, in various articles online, that, you know, uh, this is what I'm doing, and God will accept it. No. Why would God reject me? Because we're sinners. Verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding one uh, commentator ha I had uh, put it this way, whoredom and wine and new wine take away the heart. That has the idea, the, 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 the understanding or the word is heart and the, the ability to exercise moral preference, just to be able to think straight. Just the, the, the it's, it's that part of us that is about our will and our affections, what we want to think and what we want to do and what we love. And he's saying harlotry has corrupted that. My people, this is, this is, I mean, I think we need to feel the tragedy with God speaking. My people consult their wooden idol and their diviners warned informs them. The people who had seen God move amongst them, the people who had seen water come from a rock, the people who had gone for 40 years in the desert and their shoes and clothes did not wither away, they are now consulting wooden idols. As if to think that those wooden idols and those staffs and all those diviners' wands can actually say something to them of meaning and truth and, and help. Very often I wonder, how, who do we go to sometimes when we're desperate? What are we willing to believe when we're desperate? My people consult. And God's not saying, you guys. He's saying, these are my people. He still considers them his people. And, and as we're reading this, I don't want us to think, oh, what a harsh God. But this is a God who loves his people and is willing to pursue them and pursue them regardless of how far they go from him. My people consult their wooden idol and their diviner's staff informs them. Why? For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray. There's a wind of infidelity that is taking them off course, causing them to drift, leading them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the, top, on the tops of the mountains, and obviously the higher you went, the closer you were to God. You know, the whole Tower of Babel logic. 
So that's where all the, the, the high places and where, that's where all the altars were. I lift my eyes unto the hills. Where does my help come from? Not from there. Not from those high places. Not from where those sacrificial altars are built to Baal and Asherah. My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar and terebinth because their shade is pleasant. And maybe, maybe this is just sarcasm because he's saying all those trees can offer you is shade. That's all. And yet you go and sacrifice. And therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. But I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery. Why? For the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. And so the people without understanding are ruined. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. What is the problem? The men lack the discernment to know between right and wrong. They don't. They don't know the difference between what is false and what is true. They don't know the difference between what is counterfeit and what is genuine. What do you see sometimes when you go on social media or if you're like me who stalks a bit of these <laughs> places? Drunk in the spirit. Slain in the spirit. Writhing about on the floor. Barking like dogs. Truly. Laughing their heads off. Talking out of gibberish. And they think it's worship. That's the problem. Not that they are doing something that is utterly demented. But to think that that is what pleases God. Israel is going under oak and terebinth and poplar thinking that they are pleasing Yahweh. And he's saying, no, don't do it. Just because something is done in the name of Yahweh or in the name of Jesus doesn't mean he approves of it. And men, it is our responsibility to make sure that we know, we know, number one, to tell the difference between phonies and genuine so that we can then tell our families and inform our families. Because if we don't do it, they will go astray. And believe me, their blood will be on our hands. I'm not making this up. I'm not make, I will not punish your daughters. I will not punish your wives. It's, uh, hey, they're just following your lead. When we, when we see... Females and ladies in the pulpit. Where's the husband? Mm -hmm. 
participation in, in these pagan festivals has robbed them of their heart, of their, just their moral understanding of their ability to think straight. Because there's just, it's just addled with wine and, and sex and this fake religion has had an impact on their will and affections. Harlotry, wine and new wine takes away the understanding. Oh boy, does it ever. And so they, they, they're now so gone that they're speaking to wooden things as if they have the ability to talk back to them. When truth is compromised, intellect is compromised. And worship is compromised. What is God looking for? He's looking for people to worship Him. How? In spirit and in truth. If we do not have the truth, we cannot offer God true worship. We cannot be the people that He has made us to be. And we are guilty. A spirit of harlotry has wrapped them up. They're just caught up in this mindset of misunderstanding, this, this attitude of, let me, let me adulterate this. I'm not adulterating it. I'm just, I'm just trying to make it better. I'm just trying to make it more digestible. I'm just trying to make it more acceptable. I'm just trying to get more people in the door so I can save them. And what Spurgeon says, we have turned the worship of God into theater so that we can be like the world and attract the world and we think that we know better than God as to how he should be worshipped. And so we have worship services that are not for the flock, not for the sheep, but for the goats. And that just goes sideways every time. And so what I think this boils down to is a failure to understand how God wants to be worshipped. Because we have this idea that, you know, as long as my heart is pure, whatever I'm doing would be acceptable. I'm coming with the right intention. God knows my heart. Oh, yeah, He does. You shouldn't be saying that. If I feel good, if the people are happy, if everyone's got their hands in the air, maybe it's okay. Pragmatism. Poison. I haven't hurt anyone, so why will God not accept my worship? Because we haven't followed His true instruction, His clear instruction. It's in His Word. It's there. It's there. He's told Israel, He's told us how He wants to be worshipped and spirit, and in truth. We can't, we can't meddle with this. We can't mess with it. It wasn't just a problem for ancient Israel. It's a problem for us today. We do not know the difference between true and false worship. I've seen people go into church, oh, look, look at all the people. How can God not be blessing them? There's thousands of people in the church. America's largest church has 40,000 people attending every week. Or at least they did before COVID. 40,000 people. 40,000 people. That's maybe like 20 suburbs in Adelaide. 
They don't know the difference between true and false. Why? Can I suggest, can I suggest that they're so preoccupied by material prosperity that they neglect utterly, completely the spiritual side of things. I'm so desperate to be blessed physically that I will accept anything as long as it has a veneer of spirituality or religiosity to it. Tell me it's in Jesus' name and I'm there. And it's the leaders who are guilty because they take the people astray. And we come to verse 15, the last section. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. And so it's almost like a, like a bit of a rattling Ju Israel's chain to say, hey, you know, you guys are so far gone. At least let not Judah go. Let not Judah follow in your example. And it's not just a call, it's not just, you know, trying to rattle Israel's chain, but it's also telling those who are not a part of this idol worship and pagan worship to, hey, don't go there. It's a call to us to be, to be discerning, not to go where false worship is. Don't be a part of it. It's not, it's not because don't go because we'll miss you, which we will. But don't go because it's going to kill you. And I mean that. It's not an exaggeration to say that failure to, to keep to the truth will kill. Eternal consequences. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, don't let Israel, Judah become guilty. And also do not go to Gilgal, worship center. Those of us who did um, Joshua, it's a huge place place of the river crossing, first crossed, stone altar set up, remembering God's faithfulness. Don't go there, because why? It's been converted into a center for pagan worship, idolatry. Don't go up to Beth Avon. Now, that's a, that's a play on words, because it was actually Bethel, which was the house of God, but Beth Avon is, is, is the house of evil. Don't go there. It's the house of evil. And this is, <laughs> I, I just find this so tender, since Israel is like a, is, since Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a land, like a lamb in a large field? Can, can the Lord be a shepherd to people who will not be sheep, who are just obstinate, stiff-necked? Was the problem at Moses' time? It's a problem in Hosea's time. It's a problem in our time. Can the Lord now pasture? Can He feed them? Can He can He be the shepherd in Psalm twenty three to them? <coughs> if they are stubborn, Ephraim is joined to idols. He's spellbound. He's <laughs> he's enchanted. He's lost his mind. Ephraim is now coupled. And that's the northern kingdom or the largest tribe in the northern kingdom, a representative for Israel. Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. And here we see the judgment of God. He leaves us to our own devices. And he will do it. He will allow, what does is, what is Paul say in, in, in the New Testament? Hand them over to Satan. 
he'll soon realize. And that's the judgment of God. Let him alone. Their liquor gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. That word shame has the idea of something being worthless. And this is, this is, the, this is the tragedy. They're exchanging the glory of God for worthless things. It's, you know, we, we, we get so enchanted by these little trinkets that we miss the richness of the glory of God. The wind wraps them in its wings. They become so passionate about that which is shameful that they've been caught up in this whole movement. They've been caught up in this whole spirit of the age. And they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. They will be disappointed because of their misplaced confidence. And so the consequence of, of, of obstinacy, of, of compromise, is obstinacy. Play the harlot continually. Exchange glory for shame. Becoming passionate about that which God hates. Imagine the tragedy of someone who thinks that God is happy with them when he is not. We've got people like these in our families. We've got people like these in our workplaces. We've got people like these who are our neighbors who are constantly, constantly in false worship. I'm not talking about Hindus or Muslims or Buddhists. I'm talking about people who claim to be evangelical. How tragic. So just to summarize... Compromising truth leads to defilement of the covenant, which leads to an estranged relationship, which leads to wrath and judgment. It's, it's clear that that, that, that that progression, that trajectory is clear from verse 1 to verse 19. What are we going to do about it? That's the question, isn't it? How can this not be us? How can this not be our story? That's what I'm interested in. It happened to Israel. It happens around us. How can this not happen to us as individuals? How can this not happen to us as a church? That's the key question. Study God's word. Let's just reverse the accusation. No truth, no covenant loyalty, no knowledge of God. Let's have truth. Let's have covenant loyalty. Let's be so intimate with God. My sheep, hear my voice. That's key, isn't it? Do we know our shepherd's voice? Can we tell his voice from all the other voices that are claiming to speak for him? Can we tell the difference between worship that is man-centered and worship that is Christ-centered? Can we Tell the difference between all the bells and whistles and all the trinkets. And can we really understand what true, true worship is? We will only know when we are saturated by God's truth. How can we not be like this? By being the bride of Christ. By not being like Israel, by not being like Gomer, but by being the bride of that Paul wanted us to be, to be presented spotless and pure 
to the Father, to Christ. Hebrews 4.14 Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has now passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, what should we do? Let us hold fast our confession. Let us cling to the truth. Let us, let us embrace it. Let us hold on for dear life. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have the confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. I mean, just look at this. There's a parallel is clear. I mean, God, Yahweh has brought Israel through. Christ has brought us through. By a new and living way which he has inaugurated us for, for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, what should we do? Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our faith without wavering. Steadfast. Hold on to it. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to Christ. In verse Hebrews 13. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And you know what follows in verse 9. Do not be carried away by varied and strange teaching. If it's new, run. <laughs> we get so caught up in some, oh, this is new, I've never heard of it before, it must be good. No, 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 avoid, avoid, run. Because we hold fast to that which God has given in His Word. If it's not in His Word, we don't hold fast. Shall we pray? Gracious God and loving Father, we just want to thank you for your word. Lord, we want to thank you for your truth. We want to thank you for the way in which you have preserved your word from the time of Hosea, Lord, to our day and age today. Father God, we just pray that you would give us a passion for your word, Lord, because your word is true. There is nothing else that is true. And let us not think, Lord, that we would, by adding to it or taking away from it or changing it, that we would make it better. Help us not to be that prideful. Help us not to be that ignorant to think that we could improve on the holy and pure word of God. Instead, Lord, we, let us with the psalmist say, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation day and night. And we just pray, Lord, that we would trust in the Lord with all our heart and that we would not lean on our own understanding. And in all our ways, we would acknowledge you and then you would lead us and make our path straight. We ask this, Lord, because our souls are at stake, lives are at stake, and we just pray that you would help us, first of all, not to be caught up 
with lies, to be able to identify lies, to be able to save others as well and point them to Christ. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live for you by your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name because he is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen.